So welcome to the first in a series of podcasts, which we are tentatively entitling Deconstructing the Magic Money Tree. And joining me today is David Scott. Welcome to the program, David. I, I'm delighted to be here, Mike. Now, we're call, well tentatively calling this Deconstructing the Magic Money Tree. This is the magic money tree seems to be the center of our fiscal policy at the moment. We'll come on to that a little bit. Just We just want to start off by saying, of course, the acronym for Magic Money Tree is MMT, which is also the acronym for Modern Monetary Theory. And I struggle to find that a coincidence. It does seem to be at least very apt um, yes. for, for the, the strange world that is uh, MMT. Uh, absolutely. Now, look, uh, what, what we want to do in this uh, series of short podcasts is to really get to the bottom of uh, economy and money. And this is really this has been sparked by the announcement last weekend by Boris Johnson that or last week that he intends to build, build, build to deal with the situation that's been generated by governments right across the world, which has resulted in the destruction of economies right around the world. And David, in order to try to understand this, I think we've got to go back to first principles and ask the question to begin with, you know, what is economy? What does that word mean? Do people understand it these days? And one of the things that strikes me is that the terms finance and economy are conflated in the modern world to imply that they are the same thing. And I suppose that would be the first area I'd like to, to sort of probe a little bit. Is finance and economy the same thing? Mm. Well, I think one of the errors we're facing now is this conflation of finance and economy because the finance should be very much a secondary. It should be boring. It should be quite sleepy and it should be very much secondary to the real economy. It should serve the economy. It should allow certain certain things to function and we'll, we can discuss what those are. But things started to go very awry when it became the star. It was no longer there to help us build real things, produce real things, export, grow, and do everything more efficiently. When it became the star performer that sucked in all of the best people to concentrate on the very useful role of trying to make an extra one-tenth of one percent on high-frequency trading. What you've said there is very interesting because, you know, you talk about production and exporting. And it seems to me, well, first of all, perhaps I should upfront say that, of course, lots of people are going to have lots of opinions about what economy and finance are all about. And perhaps it's even more divisive than the political spectrum or even race, religion, sexuality, these kinds of issues divide people. But a definition of what is economy and what is the right kind of economy is something that divides people hugely. But if I was to try to put it into one sentence, I might start off by saying it's the production, the movement and the consumption of goods and services. That might be a place to start for a definition. It, and it's a good place to start. I kind of view, when I look at the overall economy, I divide it into productive and non-productive elements. So the productive bit is all of the real economy and the non-productive bits are essentially government and finance, which are meant to be there to enable the productive bits to produce. So you're including uh, service economy and productive bit? 
Yes, I mean, it's the split between goods and services is not really, I think, particularly critical because, you know, what's the economy? One of the definitions that I like is it's, it's the way we discover the most valuable ways to serve one another. It's all about human beings and it's essentially organic and it's this means where we can, by serving one another, we advance the whole society. And the bits that are dominating this now namely government with all its regulations and red tape, and the finance sector with all of the often bizarre and mysterious things it brings to the party, are kind of dominating the simpler and more rational aspects of we exchange our goods, we exchange our abilities, we exchange our services, we exchange our, what's, what, we can, what we can offer to sell for someone who says, I, I like that, I think that's a good thing, I want a piece of that and who prefers the thing that we've got to sell to the money in his pocket. And he makes that exchange freely, and it's all based on that. And when it's based on that, it becomes this very dispersed, non-centralised network where each transaction represents a decision of a human being. Each transaction represents a bit of information, and everybody responds to that unit of information, that, that single decision, in ways that they themselves don't necessarily understand. So if you have something like you have a, you're using copper and one of the biggest copper mines in the world for some reason goes out of production and the price of copper spikes, then all around the world, people who have never met, who have never been told, who have never been instructed, will find all sorts of ingenious ways to use less copper. They'll substitute other metals in some processes. They'll refine designs. They'll switch from, from one area of production to another because the economics of it change. And all of these myriad changes all around the world go to conserve the thing that's at that point scarce. So it's an extremely beautiful and in many ways very robust system that I suspect, I think, has been painstakingly broken and taken apart by people in areas like government and finance who think, well, we can, you know, we can do better than these individual people making decisions and who find their personal interests served by introducing other controls and other ideas that tend to break that system down. Okay. If we uh, just come back a little bit from that to first principles, economies are about finding what it is that people want, producing those things, moving them to where they need to be in order to be consumed. And in the very early days of economy, that would be done through exchange. So bartering. We don't even have money at this point. This is a very interesting point. You know, how does money evolve? Because money is a natural free market phenomenon because you get money everywhere and seashells mean money and tally sticks and stones and big slabs of copper and all sorts of things have been money. And what money is, ultimately, is the most generally desirable good. So if you're selling news broadcasts that make sense of the world, okay, and you want to buy some eggs for your breakfast, you don't have to go and find an egg supplier who wants a news broadcast. You have this intermediate medium of exchange, and it's the thing that is most generally acceptable. So many things have been used, tends to in the free market settle on gold or silver and precious metals, and then 
paper tokens that, that which were backed by those precious metals. Now, the thing that, that absolutely blew me away as to how free market money actually is, is a, a situation that arose in the penitentiary system in America where tinned mackerel became money because they had to have a means of exchange. They weren't using cigarettes anymore. And tinned mackerel became money. And I'm thinking, no way. No, no, surely not tinned mackerel. But it did. And they had an exchange rate and it was so much. So they had an entire internal economy based on these little tins of mackerel. And the, the mackerel, you could also eat them or you could use them for exchange. But they had an expiry date. And after the expiry date happened, you couldn't eat them anymore, right? But they were still used for exchange. And there was actually a, there was a discount rate. They were called money macs. So you had a mac or a money mac. And it was, it was something like four, four money macs to three macs. There was, was a bit of a depreciation when you could no longer eat them. But it wasn't a huge depreciation. And they had the whole economy was based on this. And then one day they raided one of the cells of one of the prisoners who had been hoarding a large supply of uh, money max and they so they took him away and they dumped all of these tins of mackerel just in the yard right and all the other prisoners went and grabbed them right and what happened overnight was runaway inflation because there were so many so many max in in circulation chasing the same number of goods they had a huge spike in prices so the entire economy worked in this strange incarcerated environment just as it does in, in the outside world and based on not pound notes or dollars, but on tins of mackerel. So it shows you how money is a natural phenomenon that arises whenever you've got people who want to trade. It's not something that comes from the government or relied on the government being in place or controlling it. The government came along later and thought, well, we, we want to dominate this. So they started to coin money and what have you, and, and, and then they became the monopoly supplier and it's all about power. When you get right down to it, money is a free market phenomenon and we would have it if we had no government. Okay, that's a fascinating little story. Where do we go from here? Well, if you get the money's free market and you then had the role of borrowing and borrowing starts to get much more complicated because you get into a whole lot of things. But if we start off again, first principles, as you're rightly suggesting we should go, why do you have an interest rate? for example, and what generates that? And what I, what I would maintain is what generates that is a very simple human phenomenon that if you have a choice of having £100 today or £100 this time next year, you would have a preference to have it now. And if you had a choice of having £90 now or £100 next year, you might say, well, actually, I would rather have the £100 next year because that's more, right? So you establish there a time preference for wanting goods now as opposed to wanting them later. And that's the core of why there's an interest rate, that in a free society, if you go to someone and you say, look, I, I want to borrow some of your tins of mackerel or gold coins or whatever it happens to be, your, your money, that you don't need, and I, I have need of that, but I'll pay you back next year and I'll pay you back a bit more, right? And then there can be an agreement there, done. And you can see how both parties could benefit from that because you've got a guy who's got an excess of money that he doesn't really need and he hasn't got a use for, you know, personally to invest. And he's investing it in someone else 
and they are using it and they are building factories or changing production processes or doing something that makes them more efficient. And they're, they're thinking, well, I'll be able to generate from that more income and out of that income, I'll pay this guy back and a little bit more. So you can see how that there's an agreement that can be reached there. And there's other things as well, as well as time preference. You've got risk because you'll have to weigh up the chances of the person not being there. There'll be a risk premium on top. And there's a few other things besides, but you end up with an interest rate. And this is also in a free market system. And you've got to go back quite a long time to find one. But in a free market system, that interest rate has a really important role in regulating the whole system. Because what happens if people tend to save more? Current economics, the economics I learned at university, which was fine for understanding what the politicians were saying on Newsnight, but absolutely no use for anything in the real world. It was Keynesians, and it, it talked about the paradox of thrift. And if, if everyone saves more, there's less money in, in circulation being spent and everyone's poorer. So the paradox of thrift was if everyone saves more, everyone gets poorer. If one person saves more, then they get wealthier. But if everyone does it, it it's a bad thing. That was actually taught to me at university as knowledge, as a fact. This is garbage because you don't just stuff things under a pillow. If everyone saves more money, then there's more money available for people to borrow. And generally speaking, then what would happen is the interest rates would fall. And that sends a signal to people who are wanting to borrow that you can, you can get investment capital at less cost. So the things that they were thinking that they couldn't afford to do, if I've got to pay 10% on my loan, I can't afford to buy that machine. But, oh, it's only 5% now. Well, that stacks up. I can make a profit. So that sends a signal to the people making production that they need to be doing more. They need to be investing more to get geared up for more production. So on one hand, you've got people who are spending less now to save for the future so they can spend in the future. That sends a signal to people who are manufacturing to say, take a longer, more efficient, more roundabout way of manufacturing, build up now, invest now for more production in the future. So the thing actually balances that information from one side of the economy to the other is coherent. But you're talking and, and, about a you're talking about a situation which is uh, uncontrolled by a central authority, shall we call it, whether it be a central bank or a government. As soon as you have a central bank or a government deciding what those interest rates are rather than leaving it up to the market to decide, you are now getting in a position where either the bank or the government, and in modern times it's the bank, decides or controls when those signals are sent and it becomes an artificial process. And this is exactly the problem. You're taking the most important, the government and the banks are taking the most important price in the entire economy, the price of money, and controlling it politically. And it's not surprising it goes horribly wrong. So, and if you just consider how it goes horribly wrong, the, the government pretty much all the time wants interest rates lower, right? Because they want to get more cheap money into the economy, more spending, everyone will feel good, the politicians will get re-elected. So that's the incentive. We understand the incentive. But what happens then to the signals? So people are not saving. People are spending. And savings are not going up. But the government artificially squash interest rates. So the signal goes to the man who owns the factory. Money's cheap. But there's no money available because everybody's spending. Well, you, make, you, you manufacture the money. 
right? The government artificially suppresses interest rates, so that's this bank intervention is increasing credit. Okay, so it's not based on saving; it's based on nothing, and that's a key. That's a key thing to understand. There's two types of borrowing. Borrowing that's based on saving is good if it's for investment. Borrowing that's based on nothing is very, very bad. Because just think through what the signal is now. So you put fake money, essentially, counterfeit money into the system. Interest rates are held artificially low. The people are still buying stuff. So they're still consuming. But the signal goes to the factory owner that actually the people are saving more because interest rates are low. And uh, he should be investing in long-term projects, extend his factory and buy new machinery because there's going to be more production needed later. But there's, there's resources available now for that investment and they're cheap. So he starts all of these projects and those people start things like housing construction and all the rest of it. And what happens then is that there's more money chasing the same number of real resources because cons consumption's up as well. And the, the effect is you get inflation and it drives up prices. And all of the plans that all of these entrepreneurs who own factories made, right? They were all based on the not being inflation and all of a sudden there is. And all the things they need to buy after they've started their projects cost more and they start to go bust. And that's the origin of the business cycle. That's why boom and bust happens. It's caused by artificially low interest rates. This is why when you get arrogant politicians like Gordon Brown saying we've brought an end to boom and bust, you know one thing, there's a really big one coming. Okay, it's but it's, oh, okay. So, but but if 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 the interest rate is held artificially low by the central bank, let's just say, and as you say, that signals to the business owner that now is the time to invest because the business owner may believe incorrectly that people are saving more money, which is why the interest rate is lower. So they borrow, and uh, you, uh, what happens next is as you describe. But in parallel with that, the, the truth is that people aren't saving more because there's no particular incentive for them to save because the interest rate is low. But aside from that, because the interest rate is low, they also start borrowing. And so you not only have businesses borrowing for investment purposes, but you have households borrowing for entertainment purposes or for a new kitchen or whatever it happens to be. It's not really, it's not, it's not being put into anything productive. It's paying for consumption. And so that even makes matters worse because once the businesses start going bust, people start losing their jobs and then they start defaulting on the loans that they've taken out. And so the, 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 the downside of the business cycle becomes bigger. Yes, because it hits the financial sector and it hits the personal sector. And because everything is leveraged up to the hilt on debt, everything is unrobust, right? Because if you've got no debt and you're running a business and there's no debt and you get hit by a recession or a downturn, there's a lot you can do to weather the storm, particularly if you've got some reserves and you're not hemorrhaging a whole lot of money from any particular source and you don't have anyone beating down your door saying, give me the loan back. And companies that are leveraged on a huge amount of debt, they just don't have that flexibility. And as soon as there's a downturn, they're, they're gone. The, this, all of these decisions that we're making through the banking system, through the central banks, and through the government, and the, and the three have a really strange interaction and relationship one to another because they're all involved in this and they all have their own incentives. They've made the whole issue of 
borrowing and lending completely unrelated to the real economy. So it's no longer what you might call you know, free market capitalism. It's something else. It's a state-controlled signal. I don't know how much they believe it now, but certainly they did up until the financial crisis, for sure they did. They talked about the levers, holding the levers, and they felt that they could move these levers a little bit and they would control the economy and that state intervention would counter recession. That's the whole pitch, the whole Keynesian economics in one line is state intervention counters recession. That's the line. But they hadn't taken into account the monster that had been created in the financial industry following the Big Bang and the repeal of Glass-Steagall? Well, they hadn't taken into account a whole lot of things. They hadn't taken into account that state intervention causes recession, right? Like for one, right? They hadn't taken into account that the more protections they put in the financial system, the more perverse incentives that they created. The famous one is the Greenspan put, right? You know, you could keep piling into the stock market. You didn't have to worry about it going down because if it ever went down, the Fed would go and keep it up. So now you're investing for financial gain, but you can't lose. Okay? How much money do you borrow under those circumstances? All of it. Every penny you can get. I can't lose. So all of their actions simply stacked the unstable pile of furniture that they were standing on higher and higher and higher. And then we hit the financial crisis of 2008, which was based on a lot of this collapsing and principally a huge bubble in the housing market collapsing. And that's another interesting thing, because I'm an engineer. At that point, I was actually doing quite a lot in the housing sector. I saw it coming just before it hit. And then as it hit, I was reading an awful lot of economics to understand what was happening. And I was looking back on the decisions that I'd made, and I could see partly hindsight, partly because I was better read in economics. I could see the mistakes I've made because I was bringing in people from other sectors, other business sectors, and I was retraining them how to design housing because the message I was getting from my clients was constantly more production. We need more. We Could you do more for us? We need more production. We need it faster. We've got huge volume. We can't get design services anywhere. We want you to do more and more and more and more. And I responded to the market signal. Then the market signal was based on all of this funny money, based on all of these false signals and all of the housing investment that was going in based on nothing, based on uh, borrowing, not based on saving, borrowing based on zip. That's what we were doing. And it's very difficult in that position to say, to turn away the work, to let it go to your competitors, because everyone's responding to the signals. Everyone's gearing up. And you have to have a very clear view of economics to decide whether the signal's real or not. And at that point, I didn't. And I responded to the, what was coming in the door and then had a chance to reflect on my error at leisure when everything changed, as so many did. But I, I had brought people from other sectors. I had retrained them. The recession hit. I had to let them go. And they then went and go, went back to either the original sector or some other sector. And those resources, those real resources were human beings. We had brought them in and we were employing them to build housing that we didn't need, that was only there because of artificial inflation of house prices. That was malinvestment. And when you have malinvestment, it needs to be corrected. They actually needed to be somewhere else. They needed to be building tractors or they needed to be providing, you know, 
logging timber or whatever they happen to be doing, it wasn't building houses, they needed to be doing something else. So the false signal created an economy that was no longer responding to what real people need, which you said at the start is what it has to do. It was responding to the false signals. And the longer it goes on, the more false the signal gets, the further the, further the economy gets from where it should be the more the inbuilt malinvestment stacks up. And then that's a problem. And then you get the bust. That's the boom. Boom's the problem. You then get the bust, which is the correction. It's solving the problem. But of course, now the government and the Bank of England and the banks generally have decided we're too big to fail. There can be no busts. Busts are a thing of the past. They keep telling us this. So uh, there can no. be no correction. Well, of course, that was true up until three months ago. But now, now something very special has happened. And we've decided that a global pandemic has been in progress. And for the first time in history, we have dealt with that global pandemic with the complete destruction of economies, productive and unproductive around the world. And so, as we mentioned at the beginning of this program, Boris Johnson, uh, a week or so ago, announced that the way to solve this problem is to build, build, build. And so based on what you've described here, my the, the question then is, is that the appropriate response? Now, it seems to me that at the beginning of this program, and this is be what I'd like to investigate now, I asked the question, do you consider manufacturing as productive and do you also consider the service economy as productive? And your answer was yes. But if we look at how the real economy has been changed over the last 40 to 60 years, where we've seen investment being pulled out of manufacturing, what I would view as the productive economy, and those jobs being offshored and being replaced with a service economy where to give one example, in Plymouth, we have probably 500 tattoo parlors and, you know, you know, town squares with four hairdresser shops or six hairdresser shops in the same bit of street. And they're all competing for the same business. We have people on zero hours contracts because there really isn't enough work for them. And so they're, having, they're effectively job sharing. So we have, we have had the systematic, as I say it, the systematic taking apart of our productive capability of manufacturing and building things and replaced it with increasingly service-driven. And in that, I include pubs, restaurants, hotels. And I'm not convinced. So, so setting aside what Boris, Boris has planned to reorient things back into, into building, before we get to that, I'm not entirely convinced that a primarily service-based economy without some kind of intervention could get us out of what I accept is a completely artificial depression that we're in. But the depression's there, whether it's generated artificially or not, and I'm not convinced that, that any service economy can get us out of that because we're not actually generating anything of real value. I think, I think that's a good place. You, you've raised a whole series of things there. I think that's maybe a, po a place to, to pause this one. Right. Right. You talked about zero hours contract. I'd like to come back to that. But the key word that you finished there was the word value. So when we pick up this next time, 
let's make that the starting point because we have to what talk about value? what value is. Yes. What is value? And then we'll work from there. Um, so by answering what is value, it may well answer many of the questions that I've just raised. I, I hope we'll make some headway. <laughs> okay. Okay, well, look, uh, on that note then, David, thank you very much for joining me for this first edition of Deconstructing the Magic Money Tree, and we will take this up again next week. Thank you very much. That's lovely. I look forward to it, Mike. Thank you very much. Okay.